Hello, everyone. Good morning. My name is Matt. I'm the youth pastor here, and this morning I'm going to be bringing you the message, A Distilled Gospel. And what distilled means, of course, is you take something, you purify it, and, and, and get right to the essence of it. So today we're going to look at the essence of the gospel. Um, but first, an obligatory slide about the Super Bowl being today. Um, if you are a high school student, today at 5 p.m., we want to invite you to join us. We're going to be watching. Uh, we don't have any written consent from the NFL, so we're going to be watching broadcast television together. Put, put it together. Um, if you're confused, ask me after. But um, we're going to have a ton of meat. We're going to have a ton of salad and all these sides. If you, when you come, if you could bring a side, a dessert, or a drink to share, we'd love to have you. Um, it's a great night. If you don't like football... Most of our youth group doesn't like football, and they'll be doing stuff in the gym or just hanging out. So it's just a fun time. We care more about the commercials, although last year. Um, so this is, our, this is our Thrive logo. And today as we talk about the gospel, I'm, I'm going to take you on a journey. Um, and as, as we start this journey, I want to tell you that the Thrive logo is very intentional. Um, obviously, Thrive is upside down. Um, but the, the reason for that is because the kingdom Jesus came to bring to this world was upside down of everything that this world values. And, and so this is our logo on the hoodies we have on our upcoming trip. All the kids are going to get this. And, and the hope of this is that when their friends see it and say, why is it like that? It invites them to say, let me tell you about Jesus. It's a real simple way to do it. And I also think it looks really cool. Um, if I like it. So I also designed it. So I'm you know, I'm biased. But, but the point is, is that, that the goal in Thrive and the goal of our church is to share the gospel. Um, I, in fact, a big part of my job, um, I, I work with we, uh, Dan and Rich, and we think about outreach, and we think about evangelism and how to take the gospel out. And, and so I read a lot of books about the gospel, and I, I spend a lot of time thinking about what is the gospel and how could we share it better. When, when I was much younger, in my early 20s, I was working at a church, and I had the chance to lead a thing called an alpha group with a bunch of high school students who were from unchurched families and got, got to lead almost all of them to Christ. And, and I have been a part of sharing the gospel with people a long time. I have the gift of evangelism. I've seen so many different resources. I feel confident in the gospel and how to share it, or at least I did until two months ago. Um, we're going to go on a journey today. And the starting point of this journey is I, I send a survey at the end of the year asking the students questions about what did you learn this year? What did you learn? What did you go through? And on it, I added the question, how would you share the gospel with someone in four sentences or less? And it got really uncomfortable. And it's going to get really uncomfortable today because I actually, if you have a bulletin, there's two sheets in it. There's a green sheet and a blue sheet. And I, and I want to ask you to take a minute and in the best words you can, write out how would you explain the gospel to someone in four sentences or less. On one side of that blue sheet, it just says to do that. Now, if you're someone who says, Matt, I need more time than this, we're going to be in the book of 2 Timothy today. And in the book of 2 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, be prepared to share the gospel in season or out of season. So if this is alien to you, you've still got a minute. Just do your best, write it out. The goal of this isn't to be right or wrong. Hopefully you're right, but if you're wrong, the goal of this is to see this is what I believe, and now let's step towards what the Bible says. So I'm going to give you a minute, and I'm going to step off stage.
if you're still writing, you can keep writing. Um, but our, our goal today is we're going to look at what are the core components of the gospel. And, and this question you're answering, how would you explain the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to someone in four sentences or less? Um, this question and this journey I've been on that you're all jumping on with me. Um, what I want to tell you is I, I've, I've asked about 70 people, about 30 of them students, 40 of them adults. And, and of everyone I've asked, maybe 10 to 15 percent have had one of what Paul calls the core components of the gospel. So, so like 10 to 15, that's like not even a quarter of them have had one of them. None of them have had the second, and that's myself included. Um, and, and when we get to this, I, I think you're going to go, wow. Because I, I, I've taught this to our senior high students last few weeks now, and when I taught them about it, I said, you know what? I think when we reframe the gospel from this standpoint, you can almost get there without the Bible. Not that we're not going to use the Bible, because that would be silly, because the Bible is the most amazing book in human history, and it's how God reveals his word to us. But the fact that the evidence outside of the Bible backs up the Bible on this is phenomenal. And so by the end of the day, I hope that you come away saying, I understand this better, I've got this defined in my own life better, and I'm ready to share this with others. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you for your word, the way you reveal yourself to us through it, the special revelation that comes from the Bible. And we thank you for the way just nature and the heavens and this earth sings to your glory. And we thank you that in the midst of all of that, that you desire for us to know you better and better. We thank you for your gospel, for the good news that is good news for each and every person who hears it and responds. We pray that today that you would help us to just have eyes to see and ears to hear what your word has to say, that we would step closer and closer to your truth. And, and, and I pray that, that these would not be my words, but these would be the words that you have been speaking through me these last two months and, and through my life. And I, I thank you for this chance to share, and I, I thank you um, just that we can gather together in your name. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I show the picture of this guy all the time. This is Julius. Um, this is my mentor from Moody. He was a professor there when I was there. Um, if You can kind of tell he's wearing a bow tie. This is why I wear a bow tie. And I'm going to tell you the whole story today. I've never told it before. And when you hear it, you're first going to be underwhelmed. And then hopefully you're going to be like, okay, Matt, that's okay. So when Julius turned 50, his wife and, and he turned 50 on the same day, um, April 1st, which is a really funny day to have a birthday. Um, but, but they turned 50 on the same day. And April said to Julius, you know, I'm 50. You know, like this is a big moment in my life. I'm going to run marathons. She'd never run marathons before. She decided, you know what, I'm 50, I'm going to do it. And April still runs marathons. She's running the Boston Marathon, Chicago Marathon. She, um, she's tried to run overseas. I think she has run overseas. Um, I don't, Jess says yes, so. Um, but April and Julius are, are mentors to us, and ja Jess and I. But, um, and Julius, in response to that, said, well, I have to do something too. I'm going to wear a bow tie. <laughs> that, that really is it. Um, Julius began wearing the bow tie when he was 50, and um, when I met him, he wore it every time he taught at Moody. And, and when I was at Moody, I, I started off in his class. He, he taught the how to study the Bible class, hermeneutics, and, and how to critically think about the Bible. And I had classes like that with him and classes on discipleship. And my second year, um, I interned with him. And I spent all the time I could with him because the way 
that he taught me and the method he taught me was something that I said, I want to be able to stand before God's word and I want to tremble as I read it the way he does. And I want to be able to apply it in my life and I want to be able to communicate it out the way that he does. And so when I wear the bow tie, I'm remembering the community I was a part of, not just him, but other Moody professors and the community of students there. And, And I'm remembering how I was trained to study God's word. And so the story really starts with Julius, though, because um, on December 4th, I went and visited Julius for a couple days, and while I was with him, he just out of the blue, he's leaving to go to Spain for a month, and he says, hey, Matt, can you help me make a few videos for an online course I'm teaching? And I was like, okay, and he's like, yeah, they're due tomorrow. Um, And that's a very Julius thing to do. Um, And as we start, I was like, cool, I'll help you. And so Julius is teaching from the pastoral epistle 2 Timothy, which is Paul's last letter He writes it to Timothy, who is his protege, and he's handing over the mantle of preaching the gospel. He says to Timothy, it's your time now. You've been doing it, and now my time is up. My race is won. I fought the good fight. My time is up. Timothy, it's time for you to take this on. And in the midst of that, as Julius was was walking through this, um, Julius does this thing where he'll read a Bible verse and then immediately say, do you do that? And he read this verse. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. And he said, Matt, do you preach that Jesus was the offspring of David when you share the gospel? How many of you wrote down the offspring of David? Hmm. (laughs) Right? Um, It's really weird. Hey, can I tell you about Jesus? He died for your sins. He rose again. And um, he's from the lineage of this guy from the Old Testament that goes back 28 generations. Let me tell you. Like, it just doesn't really flow, right? It just sounds really weird. And so Julius said, Matt, do you do that? And then he just moved past it and moved on to the next thing he was teaching. And, and I just sat there and said, no, I don't do that. That's silly. I, I am confident in how I share the gospel. And I would never mention that Jesus is of the offspring of David. That's for when you're discipling someone and you start to show them how God's word is applicable in, or applicable in their life all the way around. You don't start with line of David. That's a really weird starting point. And, and here's the thing. It's, these are the core components of the gospel. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. In your notes, you've got the, a green sheet, and it, it starts in Romans. The Romans wrote is how I have always preached the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. Wages of sin is death. Gift of God is eternal life. All that stuff. That is how I have always preached the gospel, and I've always focused the gospel on the cross. And Paul doesn't mention it. In fact, if we go to the beginning of Romans, because I, I thought when I went to this verse, 2 Timothy 2.8, I wondered if maybe this is Paul making like a, an intimate letter to Timothy that he's reminding him of a specific thing that maybe we don't know about. But then I go to the beginning of Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. And then Paul goes into a greeting. He doesn't mention the cross. The, the core components of the gospel are risen from the dead and the offspring of David. We're not going to get rid of the cross, but I want to show you how Paul thinks we should start the gospel. And it's not just Paul. When we ask, where's the cross? If you look in the book of Acts, this was a huge aha moment for me in the last two months. When you look in the books, book of Acts, 
the death and crucifixion of Jesus are mentioned less than five times total. And you can say, but, but anytime you say raised from the dead, you're referencing the death, right? But here's the thing, they never, they never focus on the death. Two of the times the crucifixion or the cross is mentioned and Jesus being killed is mentioned, it's accusing the Jewish leaders. It's never a primary point of how they preach. The final time we see Paul preach in the book of Acts, he stands before King Agrippa, who is a, a, a Roman, and, and he stands before him and he focuses on King Agrippa. I know that you're aware of the prophets, the Old Testament writings, the line of David. And, and so let me tell you about the resurrection. The focus is never on the cross or what happened on the cross. And there's a reason for it. And I'm going to show you it today, and it's amazing. In the book of Romans, the death of Jesus is mentioned, but never connected to the cross or crucifixion. The big idea always lands on the resurrection. In, in the Gospels, whenever Jesus talks about his death, it is immediately tied to his resurrection. The one time it's not tied to his resurrection, it's because... It, it, it's the one time he doesn't say my death and then resurrection is because he just talked about the resurrection a long time and then at the end says, by the way, death is happening in three days. The, the point of all of this is that the gospels and what Paul preaches and what Peter preaches and what the Bible really wants us to land on is the resurrection and the line of David. And again, the line of David sounds weird. We're going to get to it. But to start, I want to show you something amazing about the risen from the dead, the, the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The resurrection is a unique event in human history that is provable. The resurrection is a unique event in human history that is provable. Now, you may say, how would I prove it? How can you disprove it? There is no body. There's no grave of Jesus. There, there's nothing there. There's, like, the, the early followers of Jesus all made these claims about who Jesus was, and all said he was resurrected. There's 412 men, or, or somewhere around that, um, that all said Jesus was resurrected. They interacted with him. They were the beginning of the movement of Christianity. And, and there was a whole movement against those 400-some people. And that movement started the Jews, the, the Sanhedrin, the, the people, the Jewish leaders who killed Jesus or who were responsible for his death had no desire for the Christian movement to start. When Jesus died, they were like, it's done. When they heard that he rose again, they were like, we got to put an end to this. In the way, it, you, if you know the story of the, the passion of Jesus and the, the crucifixion, the, the Jewish leaders take him before Herod and then Pilate, and they have to get permission to kill Jesus, right? They're not allowed to. The Jewish people don't have the right to kill someone without the Roman authorities giving them the permission. But in Acts, we see them start to kill people. They kill Stephen. They stone him. The men of their religious, the, the leaders of the Jewish religion stone a man, even though it puts their entire authority in Jerusalem in jeopardy because they hate what he's saying so much. And what's interesting, we do have records from the Sanhedrin at that time. And in those records, there's not anywhere written, I don't know why they keep talking, to the, talking about the resurrected Jesus. We have a body. There's no record of a body among the Jewish people that were against the movement of Jesus that started. And there's no record of, of a body from the Romans because the Romans did not want a movement like Christianity. The way the Romans ruled is when they took over, they made you start to adopt more and more of their culture. And do you know what religion does not adopt anything of the culture they had? Christianity. 
And, and they did not like this religion. That's why Christians were persecuted for close to 300 years after the resurrection. And, and beyond, obviously. But, but for 300 years in Rome, they were persecuted until finally Constantine was an emperor who converted to Christianity and then made Christianity legal. 300 years after the resurrection occurred was the first time they were allowed to be Christians inside the Roman Empire. And in the midst of all of this, there's not any recorded evidence of, I don't know why they believe this, we have the body. There's not a body, there's no way to find a body. Church, let me tell you, Paul talks about if we're wrong about Christianity, we're to be pitied above all people because we're fools. If a body was found, I would feel like a fool. I would be like, I'd, I need to go figure out another job. I'm going to flip burgers. I'm gonna, I don't know what my education is going to do for me if we could prove the death and continued death of Jesus. But there's no way to do it because his resurrection occurred. On top of that, the apostles of Jesus, his early followers, never de denied the resurrection even to save their lives. We have records of how many of them died. Timothy was stoned while preaching the gospel. Uh, um, Paul, we know, was martyred for his faith. Peter, Peter, you know, Peter, the guy who in, in the gospels, they talk about how, how he ran away and he denied Jesus three times. Uh, when, when Peter died, he was put on a cross upside down. And the reason they crucified him upside down is because he said, you can kill me, but please don't kill me the way you killed my Lord. I'm not worthy. These men never denied it. If any of them denied it, there would be so many historical records of it. If Peter said, wait, 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 don't kill me. We took the body out. Here's what we did with it. The movement dies at that moment. The movement falls apart. The resurrection is the, e is the most important part of our faith, and it is also the easiest to prove. On top of that, the apostles if you look at their lives, they did not gain financially in any major way for preaching Jesus Christ was resurrected. We're in 2 Timothy today as we read that verse and see what Paul's gospel was. And let me tell you, Paul's gospel never led him anywhere positive. If you read, it, it did lead him positive. He's in heaven now. But um, Paul in his life lived in so much obscurity. He, he lived in so many places. He um, there were other people that started to come into the Corinthian church after he left, and they were better speakers, and they, they were nicer and more polished. And, and the, the Christians started saying, well, maybe we like them more, even though they weren't preaching the gospel. But they were saying things that the people wanted to hear. Paul and the other apostles all lived out their lives not gaining wealth. This wasn't a movement where 11 guys like, got together and huddled up and said, hey, you know what? Even though Jesus died, I think we can make some money off of this. There's no evidence of that. In, in the letter of 2 Timothy, one of the things that Paul says to Timothy is, hey, I need you to come soon. And when you come, can you please bring my heavy coat? He's sitting in a prison, and he's cold. And he says, Timothy, when you get here, I need a coat. There's, there's no early apostles that, that were wealthy and were well off for what they believed. The early Christian movement was about people spreading this message despite how heavily they suffered for it. There's no logic behind why they would do that unless the resurrection was true. I want to show you one other thing with this that I think is really cool. So 0 AD, somewhere around there Jesus was born. Not on December 25th. Um, and... Uh, 33 to 35 AD, somewhere in there, there's different arguments for when exactly the resurrection occurred. We know the day because we know the Jewish calendar. 
And we know that Jesus died, and three days later, he rose again. Forty days after that, he ascended into heaven, and ten days after that was an event called the Pentecost. And on the Pentecost was when the disciples and, and the church first began to spread outward. We also know that even though 33 to 35 AD was when the resurrection occurred, the, the New Testament, no one started writing it. The earliest records we have put it around 45-ish AD. Could have been a little bit before, a little bit after, but the book of James was written. That's the earliest book of the New Testament by our best guess of the timeline. The last books we're pretty sure were written in the 90s AD. And so you look at this timeline, 33 to 35 AD, somewhere in there is when the resurrection occurred. 12 years later, 10 to 12 years later, is when we get the first New Testament book. So a decade later is when people start, start writing this down and holding it together. That means the movement lasted 10 years. And then 90-ish years later, that's, that's 60 more years that this movement lasted as they were writing the New Testament. This movement would have been very easy to disprove. You put a body up, and say, this is Jesus. You guys are lying. But these men, from the moment of the resurrection until their deaths, none of them ever denied it. I think that's really cool. I also, I also think it takes more faith to not believe this than to believe this. And that's, that's a challenging thing, because someone can say, well, you know, um, if it's only happened one time in the entire course of human history, that's pretty long odds. Look at the odds of creation itself. Whatever you believe about the, what the Bible says or about what scientists say or the Big Bang, the, the fact that we live on this planet, there's an infinitesimal chance, small, infinitesimally, man, I can't say that word. There's a really tiny chance that that, you know, the, the chance that we're on the third rock orbiting around the sun and that there's all the elements of life and that there's life here, that's not a very big chance either. And, and the evidence for that is based on things we can't figure, like we can, we can observe and hope that we're right. But in this case, the way to observe and hope that we're right about Jesus is to say, yeah, there's never a body. These men died for it and they gained nothing from it. Look at the foundation there. That's the foundation. If you share the gospel with someone starting from the resurrection, your starting point is you're asking them to choose to believe something the evidence is in favor of. Do you hear that? You're asking them to believe something that the evidence is in favor of. Now, I'm going to make a statement I've been wrestling with. Without the Bible, you cannot prove that the cross meant what it meant. There were two other men on the cross with Jesus. And there's no way to prove that Jesus on the cross really died for our sins unless we believe all of it, right? That's good. I'm giving you a heart. She's wearing a bow tie, and I just noticed it for the first time. Thanks, Irma. So, um, but, but the thing is, if you talk to someone about, the, and you want to prove it from the cross and start with the cross, your starting point is something that you're interpreting one death in human history differently than any other death. When you talk about the resurrection, you're interpreting a, a, an event that happened in human history that they're saying, even though the evidence is in favor of this, I don't want to believe it. Whose faith is built on a foundation of truth there? And now, the offspring of David. 
I'm really excited for this um, because this has stretched me so much in the last month. Um, when I first started studying this, I really wanted to reject it. There are not many things in the Bible that I read and go, hmm, I don't like that. But what I realized as I studied this was if we're going to build the case for the gospel on evidence, people are still going to think we're foolish for believing the Bible. But if we're going to build the gospel on evidence, the resurrection tells us about a man who rose from the dead. That's about it. I mean, there's a lot more to it in the Bible, but, but if you can get someone to say, okay, I'm on board with this resurrection idea, this is when the offspring of David becomes so important. So Jesus Christ, the offspring of David. God made a specific promise to David about a future descendant from his line. Now, before we go into that, if you don't, I think, David, everyone knows that the guy who flung the, the stone and hit Goliath in the head, um, and, and, and then Goliath fell over, and then David cut his head off, and then David took his head and drove around Jerusalem with that head. Um, you may not know that part of this story, but David, hmm. He was an awesome guy. Uh, but, but David was a man after God's own heart. That is how the Bible describes him. He is a man who does spectacular things because of his faith. He's also a man who does spectacularly bad things. David is the second king of Israel, the one that God anoints and appoints over Israel. And, and David is a king that in his early life is amazing. In, in the later side of his life, um, he, he's responsible for murder, deceit, adultery. Um, he, he sends his army into battle to kill a man so the man doesn't find out he had an affair with his wife. Um, David, and he puts his army at jeopardy because of that. He's lazy at times. He's prideful. He's vain in the second half of his life. But David is regarded as probably the best king in the history of Israel. And, and so God makes a promise to David about a future descendant from his line. And that's what we're going to look at today because when we say Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, this is the gospel, this offspring of David becomes so important. In 2 Samuel 7 and in 1 Chronicles 17, there is a promise made to David. David has finally become king. And David has a palace. And he's looking around and he's like, I did it. Yay, thanks, Lord. And he says, Lord, now that I have a home, it's not right for you not to have a home. I'm going to build you a temple. And he says this to Nathan the prophet. And Nathan the prophet says, sure. And then Nathan the prophet goes home. And Nathan the prophet has a vision from the Lord come. And the Lord says to Nathan, say all this to David. And what the Lord says at the start, I'm going to really paraphrase because this is really long and it gets confusing, but we're going to focus on the promises. Nathan says, hey, I don't need you to build me a home. Have I ever asked for a home from any of you? No, I don't need one. One of your sons will do that. But, but he tells David a very different promise. David says, I want to build you a house. God says, I'm going to establish through you an eternal kingdom. When your days are fulfilled, David, when your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The, the, there are two promises in here that we need to look at. The first one is someone from David's line would have his throne and kingdom established forever. Now what that means, when David was alive, 
the Israel was the, the it was the throne of David. For someone to have their throne and kingdom established forever, they have to be able to not die or have some type of power over death. Do you, do you see? There's a, there's a mm-hmm, good, good. So this is pretty cool. Um, and so this promise is very important, but there's another part to this promise. Someone from David's line would be like a son to God and God like a father to him. Now, if we look in the New Testament, this smaller portion of your Bible, um, if we look in that, the idea of being called a son of God or God a father to us is, is a pretty normal thing, right? We're called children of God. We're, that, that's, that bleeds through the page of the New Testament. It's amazing. But in the Old Testament, uh-uh. This was not something that was done. You didn't say, I, I will be a son to God, God will be a father to me, and God didn't say it either. This was not common language in the Old Testament at all. And so when God makes this promise to David, this promise is unique. Because who, who, that when it says someone from David's line, it's saying the offspring of David. And then when it adds someone from David's line will be like a son to God, it's the offspring of God. Do you see? There's a, a melding of two lines, the line of humanity and the line of divinity there. And so, at this point, if you're talking to someone about the gospel, and you, you can get them on board with the resurrection as an idea, what's really cool is the timeline of this. If someone says, how do we know all that's right? Okay, that's a good question. Well, Jesus was resurrected in 33 to 35 AD. He was born in 0 AD. Samuel, the first and second Samuel were written somewhere between 900 and 700 BC. I'm, I'm being wide-ranged here because there's different scholars arguing different things, but everyone agrees 900 to 700 BC, Samuel was written. Chronicles, which echoes the same exact promise, 500 to 400 BC it's written. And, and if someone says, well, how do we know? Well, we still have copies that are somewhat preserved of Samuel from 300 to 200 BC. Why is this important? Because if you can get someone to say, all right, so what if Jesus was resurrected? And then you can move them into this talk from this one promise from the Old Testament. You have now tied the resurrected man, Jesus, to the son, he is now the son of God, fulfilling promises that occurred two to 300 years before him, up to 900 years before him. Do you see? And this is, even if you don't believe the Bible, the ev- like if, if, if you can get someone to say, okay, the evidence is favor- in favor of the resurrection, so what? Okay, the resurrection was predicted two to three hundred years beforehand. There's no other accounts in human history of a resurrection being predicted and occurring. At least, I don't think so, right? The, the point of this is, is that we, we establish Jesus, when we focus on Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, we establish the gospel using evidence. And what I think is amazing when we do this, we're going to look at two more things as we close out our time, but what I think is amazing when we do this, um, one of my biggest aha moments from last fall, um, a definition of faith that I hear all the time, and and this came out when we were talking to our students, um, a definition of faith that is very common is faith is believing in something you cannot see. That's one way to think of faith. But a a better definition of faith, and if you read closely through a lot of the stories of the Bible that talk about faith, faith is believing that God is who he says he is. 
That's not about whether you can see him or not. There's stories of Jesus where people have faith in him when they can see him. There's stories of people who don't have faith in Jesus when they can see him. But faith is believing that God is who he said he is. Faith is believing something is true. Even when it seems like it might not be. Even when it's hard to believe it. And the evidence here is in favor of this being true. And so we're putting our faith in something that we can stand on, even as the world calls us fools for it. And, and where this lands for us, and, and the change that happens when we think about this. So Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, the importance of the offspring of David lands on the fact that Jesus is king. Jesus Christ is the resurrected king. Now, when we think about kings, we need to think about this in a very different context than our modern. A king is not the person we voted for. A king is not the person there. A king in the Old Testament, when you look at how they picked kings, what they hoped for when they picked Saul and then when they switched it to David, what they hoped for from their king, they hoped that the king would be the best person in the land, the person most qualified to dispense justice, the person most qualified to protect the people, the person most qualified to lead the people well. And the person that all of the people should aspire to be more and more like. There is no person in human history besides Jesus that is worth putting all of those qualifications on for their life. The, the resurrected king, and what's interesting here, so church, as I talk about this, I have shared this gospel out now with like four or five people. Um, and people that don't have any background in church. And what's been really exciting is when they hear this, you come to the end, and instead of saying, Jesus died for your sins, because we will get there, I promise. The cross is still a part of this message. But after sharing with them about the resurrection and about the line of David, I come to the end and I say, you know what he asks of you? The resurrected king invites you to give your allegiance to him and join his perfect kingdom. That is the gospel message. Read every time people come in front of Jesus. They come before him, and the difference between people coming before Jesus, the religious leaders, they come before Jesus, and they want to demand, where does his authority come from? The sinners and the tax collectors and the people who are humble, they come before Jesus, and they acknowledge his authority, and they ask, can I be with you? And, and the resurrected king invites us to join in allegiance with him and his perfect kingdom. He invites us to be citizens of the kingdom that he reigns in and will reign for eternity. That's the gospel. And then if someone hears that message and say, I, I want to join in, now we come to the cross. Even though the resurrected king has invited you to join him, your imperfection cannot enter his perfect kingdom. In the Garden of Eden, we were called to rule. We were supposed to be the king of this earth. And when sin happened, they were taken out. Eden was where heaven and earth met. And that was removed because of our sin. When Jesus came and he invites people into the kingdom, the reality was everyone he invited into the kingdom could not enter it. John the Baptist, um, John the Baptist, Jesus says of him, John the Baptist was the greatest of men, but even the least in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than him. Because John the Baptist died before the resurrection or the death and resurrection occurred. But, but John the Baptist, outside of the kingdom of God, was the least, uh, the least in the kingdom is better than him. And John, of course, I believe, is in heaven. And so he's great in the kingdom of heaven. But the point was people who are alive 
who give their allegiance to Jesus are going to be above that. But the reality is, is that on our own, in our imperfection, we cannot enter that kingdom because we would ruin it. The cost of entry would be blood and would be our lives for us to step in, and we can't because once we give our lives up to enter, we would die. But the resurrected king paid the price for you to gain citizenship to his kingdom. This is where the cross enters the story. Do you see? Do you see the way the cross enters the story? Because Jesus, the resurrected king, invites us to join his kingdom, knowing full well we cannot join his kingdom. This is the gospel. And so Jesus steps forward and he says, enter, enter my kingdom because I paid the price for you. And so I've got four quick points that we're going to end on. Because he is resurrected king, he asked all to join him and I accept the invitation. If you are out there today, have you accepted this invitation from the resurrected king to give him your allegiance, to join in what he is doing? Because he is resurrected king, he offers guidance and I receive his wisdom. He gives us the Bible to, to learn more and more about him and to learn more and more about what it means to live in the world as members and citizens of the kingdom he is bringing. Because he is resurrected king, he lives out his values and I follow his example. When Jesus died on the cross, his value was that even though he is the greatest man, the perfect man, the son of God, the son of David, even though he is that perfect man, his highest value was that others would be able to enter the kingdom with him. And so he put everyone above him. That's that upside down kingdom. And he invites us to join that kingdom. And so because Jesus made himself less in order to bring others in, I will do the same. I will love others the way he loves others by sacrificing who I am and what I want to be for who he is and what he wants me to be. Finally, he asks all to join him. And so I share the news. Church, this message is a message that people need to hear. It is a message they need to know who it is up on that cross. Many people know about Jesus on the cross, but they don't know the authority behind the cross. They don't know the power of the resurrection and the proof of who he is. Today, as we close our time, I want to do a couple things. If you've got that little blue sheet, I want to invite you on the back of it. There's a couple things to fill out. If today, for some reason, you, you feel like, wow, I want to join in this resurrected kingdom. I want to give my allegiance to the resurrected king. If you've never done that before, I, I just want to ask you, make a note there if today for the first time, if you've never thought about Jesus as king, I've been teaching this to our Thrive students, and one of the things that really amazed me, and then I realized, wow, this is so important, we need to talk more about this. Not many of our kids thought of Jesus as more than savior, and had that idea of kingship. And when we talked about this, we had 12 kids say, I want Jesus to be the king of my life. Yeah, that is awesome. That is awesome. We had one boy that heard this message, he's come to our church twice, and after hearing this message, he said, I guess this is true, and he's a Christian now. And, and the, the point of this is, is that when we come to this message, we, we need to respond to it. And so um, we're, the ushers are back there, the, the band's, oh, the band's coming out. Good job, band. Um, the band's going to come out. We're going to end our service in communion. If today, for the first time in your life, you have chosen Jesus as resurrected king, if you've given him your allegiance, when that plate passes around, make sure you grab a cup because we're going to remember what it is that our king did for us.
prepare your hearts while we about um, the king, the king who was on the cross in our place, who he could have had a perfect kingdom without us. He didn't need to do this. <laughs> he didn't need to do it at all, but he chose to do it because he loved us so much. And so as we come to this moment, just remember that it was a king on the cross and a king who, you know what, we wouldn't do this act. We wouldn't do this in remembrance of him if it wasn't for the resurrection. But in this moment, we remember the sacrifice he made so that we could enter the kingdom with him. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you that I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
Jesus, a resurrected king. We thank you for the sacrifice that you made on our behalf. We thank you for the kingdom that you come to bring that is perfect, that will last forever. And we thank you for the fact that even though we are so unworthy, you invite us to join you in it. You paid the cost for us to become citizens of your kingdom. And we pray that as we leave here, that we would make sure that you are king of our lives, that our allegiance would be fully to you, that you would be above our work, our families, our nation, or it would be above just anything in our lives that we could put as an idol before you. And we thank you that you put us above all, and you put the will of your Father above all to just give us a way into your kingdom. And we thank you for that now and we worship you. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Let's just keep worshiping together. Are you ready?